0: Welcome back to the channel. In light of the shooting at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas, I'd like to share a few of my thoughts with you. I leave it to you to determine how meritorious or not meritorious those viewpoints are. The Doctor Reality Vodcast with Dave Champion. Let's start with a brief recap of my background. I'm a former U.S. Army Ranger. I'm former law enforcement. I've performed high-risk felony entry warrant service. I've taught firearms, tactics, and use of force the better part of my life. I've taught things from advanced combat rifle all the way through to the vaunted handgun combat master program. I share that with you so you can determine for yourself whether my background lends itself to perhaps being able to speak authoritatively about not having students murdered on campus. I think it's important to say upfront that America has a mental health problem being presented by the media to the American people as a gun problem. Let me give you an example. So in case you don't necessarily agree with that to begin with, let me ask you a question and and you tell me what you think. Let's say you're a non-gun owner. Maybe you don't even like guns. You you want nothing to do with guns. And suddenly you come home and somebody has purchased you there in your living room. Somebody has purchased a firearm for you, maybe not knowing exactly how you feel about guns. But there it is with a card indicating that it is a gift from that person. To you so now, even if it's only temporarily, you own that firearm. Would it ever occur to you, in a million years, to go to a school and murder a bunch of students? Of course not. So, what's the difference between you that would never even cross your mind? You find it one of the most appalling thoughts that you could possibly imagine. What's the difference between you and the person who doesn't? It's mental illness. So we need to start with that acknowledgement that this is a mental health problem. Now, saying it's a mental health problem is not in any way making excuses for these murderers or minimizing the horror of what they're doing. Not at all. Because I know a lot of people, the minute you say it's a mental health problem, oh, you're trying to make some excuse for it. Not at all, as you will see as we continue. As I pondered this presentation, I wondered whether I wanted to do it on mass shootings generally or have mass shootings that are specific to school campuses. In light of what just happened at Rob Elementary School, I decided that I'm going to limit this discussion today to how to prevent students from being murdered while they're at school. Let's start with this. Legally speaking, okay, so your views may differ, but that's not going to change what the law is in this country legally speaking, because of the Supreme Court's decisions in Heller and McDonald, rifles like AR-15s are never going to be illegal in this country. The reason I bring that up is A lot of people want to have that debate, and for the purpose of today's presentation, there is no debate. I mean, perhaps that might not be the case 50, 60, 90, 100 years from now, but as the legal, the constitutional landscape exists today, after SCOTUS's Heller and McDonald decisions, those rifles are not going to be illegal in this country. So if you have the mindset that that would make the problem go away, you need to move on to some other approach because that's never going to happen in your lifetime. Let's talk for a moment about the ineffective options that a lot of people believe would actually be effective, but they're not. Uh, one of them would be once somebody is identified as don't the correct adjective would be legally speaking danger to themselves or others, but that's not always necessarily true. For the sake of this presentation, just somebody who seems to be a murderous loon. How's that? Okay. When you or public officials identify somebody who might be a murderous loon, we should take more definitive action against them, which I think on first blush is a reasonable sentiment. It doesn't play out. It's not effective, but, but it's a reasonable sentiment to have. You may have noticed that a lot of these shooters have come to the attention of law enforcement earlier in in the context of being perhaps murderous loons. And law enforcement does all that it can do. And then the person goes home because the person hasn't actually committed a crime and was not so much of a murderous loon that he could be committed against his will. So then a year or 18 months later, or two years later, suddenly that person is a mass shooter. However, when you have the sentiment that Authorities should do something more specific, more definitive, more effective when they identify one of these murderous loons. The only thing that the authorities could really do would be to keep that person under surveillance 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, in case perhaps that person committed some sort of violent attack even if it was constitutional, to keep somebody who is not suspected of having committed, past tense, a crime, which it is unconstitutional, even if it was not unconstitutional, there isn't the manpower to keep however many of these people under surveillance 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, on the chance that he may at some point a year, two years, three years, five years, 10 years from now become a mass shooter. So you can see while the sentiment is reasonable, it doesn't play out in the real world. How about red flag laws? Do they work? Well, you may remember just back on May 14th, there was the Buffalo mass shooting. In June of 2021, that shooter, Peyton Gendron, told a teacher that what he wanted to do was murder and commit suicide. The cops were called. He volunteered to go for a mental health assessment. A day and a half later, he was returned home. And we know how that story ended. On May 14th, he shot a bunch of people innocently shopping at a grocery store. 11 months after that day and a half psyche eval, I bring this up because New York has red flag laws and it didn't accomplish anything most of you are probably not aware. It costs $210 to file in court to get a red flag protective order. We should also keep in mind that in New York, a protective order lasts one year. So for one year, the person cannot be in possession of any firearms and cannot purchase any firearms. And then the order expires. The person who is the subject of the order, the person who was prevented from owning or purchasing firearms, then is able to purchase or own firearms again and knows exactly who filed that court order against him. I suspect that chilling thought and $210 that a lot of people just don't have is why red flag laws aren't effective. A lot of people believe these kind of shootings would go away. If we could limit the amount of rounds that go into a rifle, and that can be accomplished in different ways. you can. It can be illegal to have the weapon accept a magazine with, say, 20 or 30 rounds, that it can only accept 10 rounds. Or you can make it a criminal offense to own magazines that are 20 or 30 rounds and the Buffalo shooter, Brendan. He simply modified his rifle so it no longer was limited to 10 rounds, and then he went out and bought 30-round magazines, and so he had 30-round magazines he could then insert into his AR-15 that came to him in such a way that it could accept no more than 10 rounds. And these things are very simple to do. These changes are simple to make. Having to criminalize a, say, 30-round magazine to make that a crime, yeah, I'm sure the guy who's going to commit mass murder is very, very concerned about that. Also, and perhaps on a more practical level, normally the cops take four, five, six, seven minutes to respond to an active shooter situation like that. The difference between having a couple of 30-round magazines or having more, say, 10-round magazines and having to actually drop the magazine, insert a new one, the amount of people that's going to be shot absolutely no different between putting in multiple 10-round magazines and putting in a 30-round magazine. I think the people who advocate that there should be lower magazine capacity and these weapons should be modified, I think they believe that changing magazines is some sort of onerous task that takes a long time. Legitimately, legitimately, if you've got a pouch and you have to pull up the Velcro and get the magazine out, drop the magazine, legitimately, this is like a five-second thing. So if you change magazines four times during your mass shooting, you added. 20 seconds to what you're doing when the cops are going to be there four, five, six, eight minutes later. So that sort of capacity limitation is also totally, totally ineffective. Let me just take a pause right here. If you are a person who believes these various things I just discussed and showed you that they are ineffective, if you're a person who has historically, or maybe at this very time, believe they are effective... I'm not trying to take all the tools out of your toolbox. I'm trying to point out that the right tools need to be applied. So if you have in your mind that this tool will work and that tool will work, and experience and knowledge shows that both of those are ineffective, wouldn't you want to let those ineffective solutions go and look for something that actually maybe is a solution? What sense is there continuing to promote something which experience and knowledge tells us is totally ineffective. Why would anyone want to keep promoting that? There are a lot of people who believe that the police can handle it. The police are going to solve this problem. The police are going to stop people from being killed. All we need to do to understand that that is not true is look at these mass shootings. Occasionally, the cops do end up stopping the shooter— But that's after you have a horrific body count. So I don't think you can realistically say the cops are going to solve this, the cops are going to fix this, the cops are going to stop everybody from dying, when the evidence informs us that exactly the opposite is true. Then we have what happened at Robb Elementary School just the other day, as acknowledged by the director of the Texas Department of Public Safety. Law enforcement did not enter the school for 40 to 60 minutes after Ramos was in the school and gunshots had been hurt. 40 to 60 minutes. Now, you may remember years ago, the Virginia Tech shooting. And one of the things that came from that, because I can remember it so vividly, watching the footage being shot outside just after the shooting started. And cops running to and fro like chickens with their head cut off. I remember this one cop, he was jumping from behind a tree to behind a big dumpster. And then back behind a tree, it was almost like watching a cartoon, jumping, 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 and nobody doing anything to stop the shooter. And that was splashed across the entire world. The cops jumping around like idiots and never bothering to go in and actually do anything. In the wake of that, most departments in the United States changed their protocols and policies so that instead of waiting for a bunch of guys to show up, a dozen guys, 20 guys, 30 guys, instead of that, once you had three or four officers on site, you would quickly quickly measured in seconds. Get your game plan together. Of course, they would be practicing this in their ongoing training over time. You know, every several months when they have their in-service training, they would be practicing this sort of thing. So it wouldn't be a completely novel thing they were doing at the moment in crisis. Once three or four officers were there, that was considered to be a satisfactory number of people to have created a team environment where the officers could then go in and take down the shooter. The idea was that police officers who, who have wives, kids, families, right, and their unions did not believe that when somebody is upstairs executing a dozen people, that a single officer should run up there and save the day. That that was unsound. And so police officers representing through their union. They negotiated with the police department. And they came up with these policies. That it was three or four officers. That would be sufficient to offset the risk that a single officer might have going in and trying to stop that shooter. You may recall the North Hollywood shootout, uh, where the two guys that were covered in body armor from head to toe, and they had AKs, and they attempted to rob the bank, and everything went south. One of the first really <laughs> incredible shootouts that was like simulcast, right? Everybody was watching it as it went down. A former co-worker and very close friend of mine, who's a former Navy SEAL, he was there at the incident scene. And afterwards, he told me how frustrated he was. He said, Dave, if you were there, you and I could have done what was necessary to take these guys down. He said, but I could not rally any of the officers. Their perspective was, we have handguns, they have rifles, I'm not doing it. So in the wake of that, police departments started issuing what they call patrol rifles, which are AR-15s, patrol rifles to patrol officers. And the idea was then, if your bad guy has a rifle, now you have a rifle too. And again, this was the officers in the union saying, I'm not going in there if he's got a long gun and I've got a handgun. Okay, so now we'll give you a long gun. Now go in and get the guy. So if we add these together, we now have the team, the when you have three or four officers present, and they all have long guns, now you can go to your job. However, as we saw at Rob Elementary having the tools and having the personnel doesn't overcome fear. It doesn't overcome cowardice. There's a certain segment of the public who is probably very mad that I just used the C word. I think they have this image that cops are somehow really courageous. I'd like to share a story with you that I think, without getting into any personal anecdotes of me and my fellow officers on the streets, I was at an officer survival school. There was probably about 500 of us in this large room at a big hotel in Las Vegas. This goes back, I'm guessing 92, 93, someplace in that range. They had this huge screen up at the front of the room. And they put up, the instructors put up a picture of a car on a street. The car was on its roof, And there was a little bit of flame licking up that you could see from the undercarriage of the car, which was now facing the sky, right? And the instructor said, the scenario is there is a young girl, probably about 10 or 12 years old, in the car crying for help. Who here would help her? Yeah, about 500 cops in the room. Myself and my entire team raised our hands, as in a smattering of others did. I I would guess in a room of 500, there might have been 30 hands up. And the hands went up and they came back down. And when they came back down, the instructor said, Everybody who had your hands up, put your hands back up. So we all put our hands back up. The instructor then said, Look around, see who these officers are. These are the officers you don't Want to work with because they are not committed to themselves or to you going home at the end of their shift. If you had moved in towards that car to save that girl and that car had exploded, then you would be dead when it is your job to go home at night. Despite the fact that I obviously hold a different opinion because my hand was up uh, than the instructors and the other 470 officers in the room, I'm not judging them. I understand that. Going home at the end of your shift, not not being dead, is a good thing. It's, I suppose, just where any given individual draws that line. I make that point because in these active shooter scenarios, that's exactly what's playing through the minds of these officers. If you haven't been in law enforcement, you probably don't know. It is preached, 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 preached like evangelical religion. You must go home at the end of every shift. It does, doesn't matter. If a thousand citizens die, a thousand, you must go home at the end of your shift. Every cop goes home at the end of the shift. Okay. So, and again, I'm not judging, but I think the public should understand where the vast, 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 vast majority of cops draw that line concerning what they're willing to do and not willing to do as your children are being murdered. What if the cops do come in? Is that going to save the day? Well, right out of the Robb Elementary School shooting, we have this story. When police entered, one of the cops said in a loud voice, If you need help, yell out. So a young, scared girl yelled, Help! Ramos heard her, walked in the room and murdered her. My point being, that kind of complete and utter stupidity is not going to save your child. So that closes out our section on ineffective approaches, things that people think perhaps could work, or they really, really, really believe it would work if we could just do it, that are, as you see, completely ineffective. Now let's talk about something that is proven effective. And that is the Israeli model. Now, before I say anything that involves the word Israel, this is not an Israel-Palestinian discussion. I don't care what your views are on Israel as a nation and how it deals with the Palestinians or the Palestinians deal with the Israeli. This is not about this. It's is a very narrow discussion about how they keep their children from being murdered. All right. So understanding that, um, Palestinians were at one point coming onto school campuses. And murdering Israeli children. So, the way that Israelis, the Israelis, their entire society decided to address this is that school staff was going to be armed, and not just with pop guns, with combat rifles. It is very, very common for Israeli school staff to be armed, and they have zero compunction about killing somebody who comes on campus to try to murder any of the students in their charge israelis will put that intended murderer down go home and sleep like a baby now that's never going to work here in the united states <laughs> i don't know i shouldn't say ne- never say never right it certainly isn't going to work at this point in history in the united states because there's a difference between israelis and americans israelis accept the reality of violence in the world, instead of whining and bitching and griping about it and trying to solve it by legislation and tell this guy, well, you stop doing that and you stop doing the other and then the reality of violence will go away. Instead of that, the Israelis arm up, they train, and they kill the motherfuckers. So Americans aren't like that any term that I can think of about how so many Americans see this issue, any term I think of is pejorative, (laughs) but an American will look you right in the face and say, I shouldn't have to own a gun, learn how to use it, and carry it in order to protect the lives of children. That's not my job. Another way to phrase this is that The Israeli people, they accept the reality of violence in the world and they accept personal responsibility for keeping themselves and others safe. In America, a huge, huge, huge swath of the American public rejects (laughs) the reality of violence in the world how it operates how when it pops up what you have to they reject all of that because they choose not to accept responsibility for it to resolving it they do not accept responsibility for their own protection for staying alive and they do no, they sure as hell don't accept responsibility for saving children they see no shame In that perspective, I have no idea how they do it. If I was like that, I could not look myself in the mirror. With all that said, do I support mandatory arming of all school staff? No, I don't. Uh, When I taught firearms in California, one of the things, it was Southern California, I like the greater Los Angeles area, where, as you might know, there are a lot of left-leaning people living. And some of those would occasionally be in the groups that I was teaching. And one of the very first things that I would discuss with them was be absolutely confident that if you carry a gun, you can use a gun. Because carrying a gun, bringing the gun out and then not being able to engage can be more dangerous, depending on the situation, more dangerous than not having a firearm at all. Consequently, if there are school staff that says, I absolutely know for a fact that I could not press that trigger, I can go through the training, I can carry the gun, but I'm telling you in that moment, I know myself and I would not be able to press the trigger. Okay. So that's not the person. What is the value of mandating that person go through all the training and carry a gun? Absolutely none. And remember this whole conversation is about what is effective and non-effective And forcing somebody to carry a gun who knows they cannot, pro- I shouldn't say knows because you never really know until the moment, but they, they feel in their heart of hearts, they could not press the trigger. Having them carry a firearm under mandate is almost certainly ineffective. Everyone else who works in a school district on a school campus and is not one of the very, very small minority of the people who say I absolutely positively could not press the trigger. Everybody else should volunteer to go through ongoing training, purchase a firearm, perhaps the district can set up some sort of financing, learn tactics and firearm skills. If you're familiar with school districts, there are special days that teachers don't have students in the room, and those special days are provided so that the teachers can do things that the district thinks are important, okay? So, it's not unusual to have a teacher with a day without students when the district thinks it's important. So, when we look at the thing when the district thinks it's important, here's what I'm going to say. There is nothing, nothing that is more important than that the students who are dropped off in the morning are still alive at the end of the school day. That is job one, making sure the students are still alive at the end of the day. Education is second to that. I I understand education is the primary goal. However, you're not educating dead students. So job one, make sure students are still alive at the end of the school day. School districts are going to say, we can't afford that. Okay, so there's so much waste in the public school education system, so much monetary waste, uh, that I don't want to hear it. Until there is a viable program set up that meets the kind of standards we're talking about here today so that all of the staff that volunteers to do this is properly trained up and ready to go and is getting that training one full day every four months, unless or until that's happening, I don't want to hear a word about budget constraints. Take it out of all the freaking waste in your public school systems. When you've made sure that you've done everything that's reasonable to keep your students alive, then we can have a conversation about your education budget. My last thought on that program is no more than half of the training. So if you have, say, four training days in a year, no more than two of those training days that year should be conducted by law enforcement. Because although I think a lot of the public is ignorant about this, the the real horsepower in tactics and firearm is not in law enforcement. If you've been in law enforcement or been involved in law enforcement training, as have I, you know the true horsepower for these kind of issues. Is in the private sector. Now, I know that it's, it's, there's this mindset that the cops are the experts to this, and and they're not. Nevertheless, I understand, especially government institutions like school districts will have the false perception that cops are the guys that who should do the training. So my thing is, I'm saying, okay, you want to have cops come in and do some training. That's fine if that's what you need to do. But the other half of the training should be by that community that has uh, superior skill sets. And as I said, the horsepower really is in the private sector. You're probably clear on this without my saying it, but this entire presentation today was not about stopping school shootings because there is nothing, zero, nothing that can be done to stop a lunatic from grabbing a firearm or or any kind of weapon and walking on campus. What this has been about is making sure the body count is as close to zero as humanly possible, preferably zero. You know, we see this guy coming. We see he's a threat. Maybe he attacks somebody else, a janitor or something in the hallway, come out of the holster and drop him. Okay. So that, of course, would be the best case scenario that the body count is exactly zero. Nevertheless, if the body count is one or two or three, is that not better than 19, 20, 22, 35? It would be nice to. Have some mechanism by which we could guarantee the body count would be zero. Who in their right mind would not love that solution? Remember, I talked about the reality of violence in the world. So there is no such guaranteed solution that you're going to have zero body count at the end when a lunatic attempts to set out to murder children. There is no guarantee. But I wanted to highlight today the different approaches that are ineffective from the ones we know have been proven effective. As I close, if you value this sort of clear and concise presentation, do me a favor. Go to my website, drreality.news. Pick up a copy of Income Tax, Shattering the Mist, and or Body Science. You have my word. They will be, either or both, will be the most fascinating books you have ever, ever red. That is my word to you. And running a special right now, if at checkout, in the coupon code window, you enter tax truth, all one word, tax truth, free shipping. So buy the book, get this incredible information that will blow your mind, I promise you. I'll pick up the shipping and that helps me be here for you. Thank you.